Father in heaven, today we thank you that you've given us. You've given us Jesus. And in Jesus, you've given us every good gift. We thank you for the Sabbath. We thank you for your word. We thank you for fellowship. We thank you for the joy of seeing you working in our own lives, even through some of the challenges and the difficulties we face. And today, as we think about what it means to render reasonable service, we pray that you would send your spirit to be here. Father, take my lips, um, take my voice, and may your words have an impact. May your scriptures have an impact on our hearts today. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul begins chapter 12 of the book of Romans with a, an entreaty, a plea. Now, this is somewhat unique so far in the book, but it's not, it's not unique to how Paul wrote. In fact, if you look at almost all of the epistles of Paul, Paul began by giving a, uh, by giving a theological treatise, by giving a presentation of why he believed what he believed. And having given what he was trying to teach, he would then come later in the epistle to this statement where he would then begin to apply what he was teaching to the lives of his listeners, to the lives of his readers. And that's what he's trying to do here. He, he's trying to explain to them what the, their reasonable service would be given the fact that Jesus has brought us salvation and as he has described in the first 11 chapters. Now, what is reasonable service anyway? When I think of reasonable service, I think of some of those great stories of heroism where people were willing to give their lives for the throne, for their king, for their master. There are different stories we could look at, but one of the, perhaps one of the most, um, most remarkable stories of heroism and loyalty and service is found in the book of... of uh, 2 Samuel, in the 23rd chapter, you remember it was then that uh, the Philistines had encamped around Bethlehem, and David himself was, was hiding out in the wilderness. And David was just sort of musing out there in the desert, out there in the wilderness, without a lot of provisions, no doubt. David was musing and just reflecting on his, on his childhood and on some of the, maybe some of the more, uh, more, more, uh, uh, positive memories, you know, uh, reminiscing. And um, he says, oh man, right now I just wish I had a drink of water from the well of Bethlehem. Now, he knew it was impossible. He knew that Bethlehem was surrounded. They were at war. The Philistines were there, and there was no way he was going to get a drink of water. He certainly didn't intend for anyone to take that as a request. But three of his most valiant men heard him doing this reminiscing, reflecting, sort of wishful thinking. And three of, these three of his most valiant men, they said, we're going to give our king what he wants. We're going to go to the well of Bethlehem and get water. Now, can you imagine? Can you imagine three men taking on a whole occupied city or surrounded city with enemy army? Three men, they did it. Somehow they either snuck or fought their way through the Philistines all the way to the well of Bethlehem. They must have taken some time to draw water out of the well. Have you ever, I don't know how they drew water in those days. Maybe they had just sort of a rope on a, on a, uh, with a, tied to a, a uh, you know, a clay jar or something. I would think that would work the best. But I'll tell you, I've been in some places in third world countries where they use a, 
a bag on the end of a rope because they don't have jars and sort of like a and it's a little bit tricky to get that bag to start filling and and um, once they do they get it up and here they are surrounded in enemy territory they get some of this precious water they must have had some type of way to carry it back i mean they didn't have our sig bottles that we have today you know they had to have some some vessel some flask of of leather or something to carry it back in and they carry it back through the enemy lines they bring it to david is that reasonable service it's certainly loyal service isn't it they were willing they were willing to put their lives on the line for their king and we can talk about the Romans who were sworn allegiance to their, to their generals who fought for the emperor. We could talk about the great missionaries who sacrificed much, who were willing to die, the martyrs who said, oh, I wish I, wish I had a thousand lives to be burned at the stake. I would like to die a thousand times for my master. And Paul here, he begins, um, he begins uh, Romans chapter 12 by saying, I beseech you, I plead with you, I entreat you, by therefore. Now, the word therefore is always very instructive. The word therefore is filled with meaning. And sometimes we tend to just sort of speed over it, breeze past it, when we see the word therefore, because it's sort of, you know, we don't, we don't think a lot about it. And too often we read the Bible sort of in, um, in, in, in just like, you know, one verse at a time. We don't, we don't find the context. But I would propose to you that the word therefore means that based upon what we've already talked about, right? Based upon some preceding ideas, therefore, I, be, I beseech you, therefore, Brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices. Now, therefore, must point back to the first 11 chapters where Paul has been arguing about the gospel. I shouldn't say arguing. That sounds maybe pejorative and negative. He has been presenting. He has been eloquently describing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Has he not? He's been pointing out some of the pitfalls that the, the Jewish nation had fallen into of, of legalism. He started in, in Romans chapter 1 talking about how the world is lost. There's, there's wickedness in the world. And, and just as his readers were about to become self-confident, well, at least I don't do those terrible things that Paul's describing out in the world. He said, no, you're no better. Even in the church, you're lost too. Because it doesn't matter if you go to church every week. You go to church twice or three times or five times a week. It, didn't, it doesn't matter. You're lost except for Jesus, a miracle of God's grace. And so chapter 3, he goes on to begin describing what this righteousness by faith is like. We're all lost. Romans 1, the world's lost. Romans 2, the church is lost. Number 3, I shouldn't say the church is lost. The good people are lost without salvation through Jesus Christ. Number 3, we're all lost. There's none righteous. No, not one. None does good. Romans chapter 4, but there's righteousness by faith that comes, comes from God. And Abraham is given as an example of that, right? And Romans 5, therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 6, our old man dies and God, God uses, a, uh, he uses the metaphor of the resurrection, death and resurrection, that God speaks new life into our hearts. That's my heart in 2014, your heart in 2014. A miracle of divine regeneration, just as a great a miracle performed by the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. And, and so 
Paul gives us that description. He, he uses the symbols of, of marriage and, and how we can't be married to two people legally in God's eyes. And so if we're still married to our old life, we can't be united with Jesus in Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 8 talks about how we can lose, live by the flesh or we can live by the Spirit. But God wants to give us the power to be the sons of God, to be led by the Spirit of God. And so he's gone through all of this description of how we can experience salvation in Jesus. Romans is, is, is a book of the Bible that we can thank God for because it gives us one of the clearest understandings of the gospel. Romans, Paul has been arguing, and Romans 9 and 10 and 11, he, he talks about particularly the problems that the Jews had fallen into, this trap of legalism, of thinking because you were doing good, you were good, of thinking you were defined by the things you do. No, we are defined by who we are inside, and only Jesus can change who I am. Only Jesus, a miracle of Jesus, can change who I am. And so based on all of this, Paul says in Romans chapter 12, I beseech you, therefore, therefore, because of all of this that I've presented to you, this is your response, that you present your bodies, present yourselves as living sacrifices, living sacrifices, which is your reasonable service. Now, the word reasonable there, sometimes it's translated spiritual. I don't know exactly how they come with the spiritual. The Greek word is logikos. Now, that pretty much means it's rational. It's reasonable. It uses the powers of reason. Does that make sense? This is something that, that if, you, if you knew all of the information, you would do. Does this make sense? You see, the world thinks that Christianity is irrational. The Bible argues within itself, at least. The Bible argues that, no, God says, following me, giving yourself, your bodies as living sacrifice, giving everything you have to me is actually logical if you know the facts. It's your logicos service. It's your reasonable, rational, intellectual, it makes sense. Some people, they look at us when they're Christian, when they see us as Christians, and they say, why is he doing that? Why is she living that way? It doesn't make sense. It's because they've only seen the things of this world. If you have seen the things of eternity, Christianity makes sense. Does that make sense? And so, and so it's, like the, it's like the man who, in, in Matthew chapter 13, he finds a, a treasure hidden in a field, right? And he began acting completely irrationally, didn't he? Or did he? Was he acting irrationally in the eyes of those who hadn't seen the treasure? Absolutely. He was selling everything he had. His kids thought he, they were going to be next. They were, the house was empty. His wife was about to leave him. He had lost his mind. But in the end, when everyone else saw what he had seen, they could, they could affirm that he had been acting rationally all along. Right? And so sometimes we find ourselves in a situation where the world says, you're being irrational. You're not, you're not making good decisions. You're, you're doing things that don't get you ahead. But if you've seen the treasure, if you've understood the truth that is about Jesus and how Jesus wants to save us, if you have, the tr if you have seen what Paul has tried to explain in the last 11 chapters, 
Paul says, you're going to rationally, reasonably, logically choose to surrender everything to Jesus. Present yourselves as living sacrifices. You know, some people ask me, what does it mean to surrender everything? Some, years, some time ago here, probably about two years ago, we had a whole sermon on surrender. But my short explanation of surrender is how, how do I give everything to Jesus? I give Him that which is nearest and dearest to my heart. There's always something that's vying, competing for supremacy on my heart's throne. Your heart's throne. It could be even a good thing. But the way we surrender all to Jesus is not by making a list of 3,298 things in your life that need to be surrendered. The way you and I surrender all is by asking, is by giving Him that one thing that's nearest and dearest to our heart that would replace Him on our heart's throne. And Paul says this is reasonable service to give ourselves completely, wholly, wholeheartedly to Jesus. Let's explore this a little more as we look at, uh, look at this passage. Romans chapter 12 and verse 1. We First of all, we see the, the why of our surrender, the why of our service. He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, why? By the mercies of God. We've already, we've already seen the therefore pointed back. The mercies of God. Look, I'm arguing, I'm pleading with you, and what am I using to plead with you? The mercies of God. It's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. Amen? You see, there's, there's a problem in Christianity, particularly those of us who have grown up in the church. We know all the truth. We know that Jesus loves me, this I know, right? We have all of this ingrained in us from, from, from childhood. And so when we, when we come to, to exercising religion, sometimes it doesn't become very real to us. It doesn't become very real to us that, that we have... We have been loved with an everlasting love that we don't deserve. You understand what I'm saying? Does this make sense? Yes. Sometimes those of us in the church, we we forget how good God has been. And we, we move right into the things that we should be doing, the service that we should be rendering, without even really tasting the why of service. I want you to know, friends, that the gospel that Paul presents in Romans and which he is now shifting gears and beginning to apply to hearts is not a gospel of legalism. Why do we serve Jesus? Because he first loved us. Because we have been touched by his love, his mercies, by the mercies of God. Paul Paul is using God's mercy, not God's law, He's not saying you better, you better serve God with your whole heart because the Ten Commandments say so. That's not the argument that he's using. I entreat you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices. Too often, we're tempted to get the cart before the horse. Now, that's a, that's a colloquialism. And by the way, if you ever have an opportunity to speak overseas, you begin to learn that your translators don't like colloquialisms, um, right? Some of you are, are multilingual here, and you know what I'm talking about. Um, they will look at you funny 
when you say some of these idioms and figures of speech that, um, you know, you go out in the morning and the car won't turn over. Um, why would you want the car to turn over, you know? Um, it just makes no sense. Um, if you, you say someone is really on the ball, right, um, beside himself. I mean, all these English colloquialisms, we just, I've had translators look at me and just say, what in the world does that mean? Um, so, so when we talk about colloquialisms and we talk about some of these things, the cart before the horse, if we've never hitched a team, we probably don't really know how foolish it is to try to get a cart before a horse. Um, you know a harness doesn't push a cart very well, does it? It pulls a cart. And so we understand sort of what it means to get things out of sequence, but it's really impossible if you get the cart before the horse to make the horse push the cart. It doesn't work. And um, sometime, younger people, maybe you'll have an opportunity to see a team hitched and you can imagine that. Um, anyway, we're talking about sometimes we get the cart before the horse and we begin to try to live the Christian life without first experiencing the new birth, the experience of conversion that God wants us to experience. And Paul here has the order for us. He's gone through the gospel. He's spent 11 chapters arguing, even from the Jews' perspective, how Jesus is the Savior by faith, not by works, by grace, through faith. And Paul has made these arguments very cogently and very clearly, and now he comes to applying it to how our lives should be different, and he wants us to make sure it's not that we just go about changing our lives so that Jesus can save us. It's because of his mercy and he's, that because he has saved us that our lives are changed. Are you with me? Are you with me, church family? It's because of God's love, of God's salvation, of God's free gift, of what he has bought with his blood upon the cross that I don't deserve, I could never deserve. No matter what I do, I will never deserve. It's because of that salvation that we have the privilege of living new, transformed lives. And that's Paul's argument as he begins Romans chapter 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable God, to God, which is your logical, rational, reasonable service. That's the why of our service. The mercies of God is what leads us to Him, to surrender. The goodness of God leads us to repentance. Next, he moves on as to what is the what of our service, to present yourselves as living sacrifices. Now, that means, friends, that we are, we are to be used by God however He chooses. Just like the lamb was offered on the altar, just like Isaac was willing to, to, uh, to allow his elderly father to bind him, we are willing to allow Jesus to use us however he chooses. We're willing to be surrendered to his will, to his way. The what of our service is to present ourselves as living sacrifices. And friends, that doesn't mean most of ourselves, right? It means all of ourselves. It doesn't matter if we, if we give God authority over nine-tenths of our lives. If we keep that one-tenth of our life in our own control, the devil is going to use that to destroy us spiritually. We are either all Christ's or we're none of His. It reminds me of the story of a man who was selling his favorite cabin. 
He had gone, come into hard times. He built this mountain cabin and he couldn't afford it anymore and he had to sell it. And um, the bank was repossessing it and so forth. And he finally, he finally found a buyer who would buy it, get him out of this pickle. And he said, you know what? I'm going to sell you this cabin. I'm going to sell you the whole cabin except for one thing. There's a nail by the front door. I want to keep that nail... That's going to be my property. And he had the whole, the whole deed written up in such a way that the cabin was transferred, ownership of the cabin, but he retained the ownership of that one nail. Well, the new owner couldn't see why that would be a problem, so he agreed to it and signed the papers. And... Um, moved in and thought he would enjoy his nice mountain retreat. But the old owner was resentful and wanted his cabin back. So he took to hanging something on that nail. He would go and get a piece of roadkill or something, dead carcass, and he would hang it on the nail by the front door of the cabin where its putrefying stench would make being in the house unbearable until finally the guy left the cabin and he was able to buy it back at a price he could afford. Now, whether that's a true story or not, I don't know. I've heard it many years ago. But it illustrates the point that if we leave any part of our heart in outside of God's control, the devil eventually gets the whole thing, doesn't he? Like, we either give ourselves wholly to God. You know, we can't say, well, I get, Lord, I'm going to serve you. I'm going I'm I'm to serve you. I'm going to serve the church. I'm going to be your disciple. I'm going to treat 99% of the people in the community nice, except for that one person. Is that possible? Can we give God ourselves as living sacrifices? while we retain portions of our life that is still not surrendered? We can't, can we? The what of our service, present yourselves as living sacrifice. You see, Christianity flows from the love of God for us. And when we have had the why of service, when we have truly experienced the why of service, we're really not going to have any problem with the what of service. That's, that's the, the neat thing. The, if we find ourselves struggling with the what of service, we ought to spend more time trying to understand the why of service. Spend time studying the life of Christ, friends. Dwell upon what Jesus did for you on the cross. Because, friends, you see, if I understand who I really am, I'm a sinner that put my Savior, the creator of the world, on Calvary's tree. If I understand who I am and that Jesus forgave me in spite of that, it's impossible for me to not forgive my brother and my sister. If I hold resentment and don't forgive others, it's simply because I have not myself been forgiven. I don't know who I am. I don't know what Jesus has done for me. 
And so the what of service follows naturally after the why of service. Sometimes we focus too much on the what of service. I might even preach too much on the what of service. I don't know. I confess. I'm human. I make mistakes. We talk about what we should do and what we shouldn't do, and we ought to forgive, and we ought to... But first, we need to have that experience of knowing what Jesus has done for me. And so, the, fall, the order follows naturally. The cart follows the horse. And finally, he continues, and he says, the how of service. The how of service. And Romans 12, 2 gives us this, this how of service, and it's going to be expanded upon for the rest of the chapter. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So, Paul says, look, the why of your service is the mercies of God. I've spent 11 chapters talking about it. Therefore, the, the what of service is give yourselves completely to God as living sacrifices. Give your bodies as living sacrifices. The how of your service, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The word there is metamorpho. It's a metamorphosis. It's, a, it's, it's going from a, from a caterpillar to a beautiful butterfly. It's a miraculous change that you cannot bring to yourself. It's something that God wants to do in and through you. Can you imagine if the church of God were to not be conformed to this world, but were to be transformed by a renewing every day of the mind of Christ being implanted in us. Can you imagine what a witness we could be in this community? Can you imagine how others would say, you know what, they love each other, not because they know they have to, the what of their service, but because they've first been loved. And it flows naturally from a heart that's been forgiven. Oh, what a, what a wonderful, challenging passage this is. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, as we think of this reasonable service, I'm going to break uh, this up into the next couple of chapters. I believe the rest of the chapter is, is amplifying Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, what it means to be not conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So let's just look real quickly through this passage. Um, first of all, we see in verses 3 through 8 the humility of our service. We're all members of one body. Notice with me. For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Now what Paul's trying to say here is look, even if God gives you a, 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 a special place in His work, even if in the body of Christ you have a, an important task, don't start to think that you're all there is because we're all members of a bigger body and we're all dependent on one another. We all need each other. Don't think of yourself as more important than somebody else. Notice what he says. In verse 4, for as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. And so this is how the church works. We're not all the same. If you and I have the same abilities and the same gifts, we probably need to 
we probably don't need to be in the same church. <laughs> we wouldn't need to be in the same body. I mean, okay, there are two eyeballs and two ears, only one tongue. There's, there's some of us, there's some room for duplication, right, in the, in the body of Christ. But we can't all be the same. We can't all be a bunch of eyeballs. We can't all be a bunch of tongues. We can't all be fingers. We need all the parts of the body. And some of them get more credit than others, right? Some of them are, are upfront and obvious. But just think about the local church here. And I, I, I shudder to even start to think about all of the things that are done in the local church to make this ministry in, in our community and in, in the Dalton community, our own church community, function. Different people have different gifts. And, and whether it's, it's, it's the ministry of preparing food for the visitor's lunch, whether it's the ministry of, of spending time during the sermon, counting the offering, and, and uh, uh, you know, uh, being a, a, a deacon or a, a, a treasurer, or whether it's, whether it's uh, running the PA system, whether it's... There's so many things that people can be involved in, and all of the gifts are needed. Nobody can do it all. We need each other. Oh, I'm so thankful God didn't put us into the world as individuals, but as a community, as a body. And without the body, we're in big trouble. We need each other. And so when we, when we begin feeling like, well, the burdens on us are pretty heavy and I must be pretty important and, and everyone else should be the same as I am, we're getting into trouble. And that's, Paul, that's exactly what Paul's trying to say we shouldn't do. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought because we're all a part of this program. We're all a part of the body. And what a wonderful privilege it is to be a part of the body. And so he goes on. And he says in verse 6, Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in ministering. He who teaches, in teaching. He who exhorts, in exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. And so these are, these, are, these are all gifts that he's describing, parts of the body that some of us have, some of us don't. But whatever gift we have, let's use it. Notice what he's, what he's saying to us here. Don't get caught up in self-importance, thinking that my part of the body is more important than others. We are one body and we need each other. And more, more um, perhaps most importantly, he says, use the gifts that God has given you. I want to encourage you. I know some of you, Perhaps all of you are using your gifts in many different ways. But some of you may be convicted by the Spirit now and then that you have gifts that God could use. And I just want to encourage you. You know, we, we, uh, we want you to be able to use the gifts that God has given you right here in the body, in the community of faith here in Dalton. Amen. God has given each one of you, I don't care who you are, He has given you spiritual gifts. And we're working on, a, on, a, on an even shorter survey, just something you can do between Sabbath school and church to help you see where those spiritual gifts might be. Um, get involved. Use your gifts. That's what Paul says here, isn't it? Am I saying this? Is the, preacher, is the preacher appealing this morning for you to use your spiritual gifts, or is Paul? Paul is. Whatever your gifts are, use them. That's what my Bible says. I think yours says, yours says the same thing. Verse 6, having then gifts differing, different gifts, according to the grace that is given us, let us use them. Let us use them. 
Use your spiritual gifts. We actually have a, a, a committee here who tries to encourage our church members to use their spiritual gifts. And it's your choice. You can choose. Um, but talk to someone on the spiritual gifts committee, on the membership empowerment committee. Talk to Kathy. Um, talk to myself. We want everyone to be using the gifts that God has given them, no matter what those gifts are. And so the first part of the reasonable service here is using your gifts, using your gifts. That's what reasonable service is all about. Isn't Paul being practical here? Is he being practical? Yes. We've received the grace of God, the mercies of God. We give ourselves as living sacrifices, and because of that, we are serving Jesus. We are giving our lives to others. We are giving ourselves as living sacrifices, giving reasonable service as we live for others. And so we go on to verse 9, and he continues on with the, uh, with, with the description, the practical application of what reasonable service is. And he, he talks about the transformed life. There, there, there ought to be a difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. I'm not here trying to denigrate non-Christians. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that I believe if the grace of God has transformed our lives, people ought to see it. They ought to know that we are Christians by our love, right? By this shall all men know that you are my disciples by the love you have for one another. And that's right where Paul starts. In uh, Romans chapter 12 and verse 9, he says to us, he says, let love be without dissimulation, the King James says, or the New King James says, let love be without hypocrisy. In other words, we shouldn't be like, oh, happy Sabbath on Sabbath morning. And the Monday morning, be talking to our fellow church member about how we can't stand that person. That's called dissimulation or hypocrisy, right? And evidently, it was a problem 2,000 years ago. I mean, I think the church has pretty much overcome it by now, right? Um, evidently, 2,000 years ago, that's the way people were. They actually were nice on Sabbath morning and not so nice behind other people's backs. Um, and that's what Paul's trying to talk about. Evidently, is a problem, right? Because he wouldn't be addressing it if it wasn't a problem. So he says, let love without be without dissent. No pretending. Just be genuine, right? Just be genuine. Actually, and, and doesn't that go all the way back to the whole why of service, right? We love him because he first loved us. And our love for others flows from our understanding of our love for Jesus and the love Jesus has for us. So the first thing he says here is don't, don't be pretending. Um, be genuine. Love genuinely. He goes on, he says, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. So basically Paul's trying to say, look, if you want to know what it looks like to give your lives as, uh, as in living sacrifices, and, uh, which is your reasonable service, this is what it looks like. Right? Use your gifts and love one another and get along with one another. Right? Isn't that what he's saying? I'm summarizing here, perhaps, paraphrasing, but I think that's what he's saying. He goes on and he says, work hard. Um, do, uh, do what you're doing with diligence, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. All of these things, God, uh, Paul is saying, God asks of us as his servants. 
Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. That's pretty hard, isn't it? You think that was only applicable 2,000 years ago when Paul wrote this? Oh, you know, I'll be honest with you. There's sometimes I read this Bible and I read it completely devoid of any, per, any, any contemporary application. Have you ever found yourself doing that? Where you think, man, bless those who persecute you. That's going to be really, that's going to, that's going to come in handy. Shove that in the back of my mind. That's going to come in handy someday when, you know, when we have persecution in the last days. Love your enemies. Well, I don't have any enemies, right? We're not at war. I mean, I'm not a soldier anyway. Do you think there's application to those in our lives today? Do you think that's really the point that God's trying to get across? I mean, is it possible that we still have enemies today? Does it even happen as Christians that we have enemies? Do we have feuds and frenemies and people that we don't get along with? Does Jesus really mean it? You think? Don't you think it's impossible? On our own? Without a miracle, I don't think I can love my enemy. In fact, without a miracle, I don't think I'm even going to recognize who my enemies are. They're just going to be people, there's going to be people I don't like, but they're not my enemies. They're just that way because they're so bad. Not my problem. They're the problem. I need first a miracle to let me see, hey, when Jesus says love your enemies, he's calling me to love him. That's the first miracle. And the second miracle is when I spend so much time at the foot of the cross that God does give me love. For someone who has hurt me. Someone who is, to my way of thinking, unlovable. And friends, if your Christianity does nothing for you that self-help books can't, it's not worth spending this much time on Sabbath morning. I believe the religion of Jesus Christ is meant to be miraculous. I believe the religion of Jesus Christ is meant to change our hearts, even this hard heart, to be more like Jesus. And if I can't or won't allow him to do that, it is a tradition, it's a ceremony, but it's not what Jesus wants my religion to be. And so Paul says, look, you've received the mercies of God. So give yourselves a living sacrifice. What's it going to look like? Well, <laughs> I'll break it down for you. Love genuinely. Get along with one another. Work hard. Be generous. Love even your enemies. He moves on and he, and he, and he says further, be empathetic. Notice he says, um, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. 
Be of the same mind toward one another. In other words, if you don't understand what I'm saying, he says, do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. In other words, don't don't discriminate among people based upon their social status or their economic status or their educational status. Treat everyone the same. Isn't that what Jesus did? Do you imagine, can you imagine how much value Jesus transmitted to people when he treated the woman at the well the same as he treated Nicodemus? He treated them the same. And they're, they're back to back, John chapter 3 and John chapter 4. A, a somebody and a nobody. A good person and a bad person. A, a, a Jewish man and a Samaritan woman. Jesus treated them the same. Don't discriminate with one another. Treat others equally. And he goes on. He says, do, do not be wise in your own opinion. <laughs> That's hard for us sometimes. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for, all, for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Brethren, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, he says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will keep heap coals of fire on his head. Isn't that amazing? I think three times in this passage, Paul's reminded us of the challenging truth that we have to love genuinely those who we don't naturally get along with. That's what he says. And if your enemy says, is hungry, give him food. Do good things to those who don't like you. And Keep coals of fire on his head. What a wonderful opportunity to minister in service to God and to others. And he sums the whole passage up in verse 21 by saying, this is your reasonable service. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Why? Because Jesus loves me, this I know. Why? Because I've given my heart completely to him. Why? Because I want to be more like Jesus. Is Christianity practical? Romans is not just a treatise on theology, friends. You don't have to have a PhD or a THD to be able to understand the book of Romans. Because when it's all said and done, it's all about keeping your eyes on Jesus and then letting this truth about his salvation change your heart, change your life. Change the way you treat others. Change the way you see others. That's what the book of Romans is all about. You know, a man by the name of James Rowe was born in Devonshire, England on January 1 of 1865. And James did not have an easy life. He he was the fifth of nine children, but the first son, the first boy, uh, fifth of of nine. And um, at an early age... Uh, Rowe entered the government survey department. I believe this was actually in Ireland at the time, or Scotland. It was in the United Kingdom. Um, he worked there until 1890 when his family immigrated to America, and he settled at Albany, New York. Uh, Rowe became a railroad employee and uh, married a, a lady by the name of Blanche Clapper. And um, later he would work in a couple of other um, occupations. He became an inspector for the Humane Society. Um, never a pastor, never a preacher, not educated, not a theologian. But Roe had some gifts that he wanted to use for the Savior. And um, one of his gifts was poetry. And so 
James Rowe began to write hymns. And um, later in life, as he retired, he moved up to Vermont where he lived with his, sis, his, his daughter. His daughter was an artist. And his, his artist daughter had made greeting cards. And James Rowe would write verses, poetry, for those greeting cards. But he didn't just write greeting cards. Late in life, his fingers gnarled by arthritis, he would painfully and painstakingly uh, write out verses of hymns. By his count, some 19,000 hymns he wrote. 8,000 of them became somewhat widely circulated, printed, used by singing evangelists of his day, etc. Some of those hymns you know. In fact, it is said that he could, he could extemporaneously write poetry, and that's one of the things that he would do. At a church service, he would stand up to speak about his Savior, and he would, he would, he would off, without having written it ahead of time, he could speak in poetic verse, um, poems, um, testifying of his love for Jesus. Several of these hymns have endured. Um, you may have heard some of them. I was sinking deep in sin, far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry from the waters lifted me. Now safe am I. Roe Ro wrote these hymns. They expressed his own personal desire to be like Jesus. And our closing hymn we're going to sing today is one of his hymns. The, the verse goes like this, Earthly pleasures vainly call me, I would be like Jesus. Nothing worldly shall enthrall me, I would be like Jesus. He has broken every fetter. That's the why, isn't it? I would be like Jesus. That my soul may serve him better, I would be like Jesus. All the way from earth to glory, I would be like Jesus. Telling o'er and o'er the story, I would be like Jesus. That in heaven he may meet me, I would be like Jesus. That his words well done may greet me, I would be like Jesus. Be like Jesus, this my song. In the home and in the throng, be like Jesus all day long. I would be like Jesus. I think what Paul's trying to communicate to us in Romans 12 is that if we understand the gospel, we're going to also, with James Rowe, want to be like Jesus. Is that your desire today? Would you like to make this song the prayer of your hearts? You know, they've said, it's been said, the fastest way to make a whole bunch of Christians break the commandments or at least the one commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness, is to have them sing hymns. Because often we sing them without really thinking about what we're saying or meaning what we're saying. Today I want to invite you to join me as we sing this song by James Rowe. And I want, I want this to be the prayer of my heart. I want this to be true, not James Rowe's words that I'm reciting, but my own desire, the expression of my own desire, that I want to be like Jesus.
This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.